Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Hiristro Borisov, the co-founder and CEO at Payhawk. Payhawk is a spend and expense management platform. Hiristo, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. For listeners who might be unfamiliar with Payhawk, and, and a lot of my readers, listeners to the podcast uh, are based in the US where you've launched recently. Can you provide some more context on the company, uh, where you operate, the kinds of products and services that you offer? Hey, Jason, thanks for having me for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, I would say that for the US, we're actually targeting, uh, I would say, mid-sized enterprise customers. Um, so with Payhawk, we are a company that is in the spend management space and we issue, you know, credit cards and debit cards to customers and allow them to de- deal with bill payments. And what's unique about Payhawk is that we are allowing co- our customers to issue their cards in 32 countries. Um, so we can, you know, help them with their international expansion. We can cover all of their international entities and currencies that they need to spend on. And we have a pretty sophisticated integration layers to Oracle NetSuite and Microsoft Dynamics and other ERP systems out there. And we are allowing our customers to do data extraction in 62 languages to fully reconcile all the payments they have. So we usually, you know, sell to the finance team of companies that are about above 100 employees and scaling internationally. So it sounds like one of the key differences versus other players in the expense management space is the geographic breadth. I mean, I think listeners are probably most familiar with companies like Brex or Ramp. Uh, I'll admit I haven't gone like intensely deep on on this space. I know there's a lot of uh, attention, a lot of VC dollars flowing into it. Um, is that a fair assessment that the key differentiator for Payhawk versus some of the other uh, competitors or potential competitors is is about geography? Uh, it's about complexity. I would say that it's about the complexity of the the business and um what we're doing is really we are um you know have a lot of customers that are into the mid-size or enterprise space where they have you know business entities across you know you know 10 15 different geographies the ability to implement you know multi-entity management across these geographies implement workflows that are um you know across those entities implement you know a reconciliation and 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 uh, processing of all the pay- payments, uh, including not just card payments, but also reimbursements to employees or bill payments um, and so on are kind of an out-of-pocket expenses are a key thing. And the difference between Payhawk and some of these players is that, you know, you can actually with Payhawk implement a lot more processes as a finance team and a lot of more controls and automation. Um, and the difference between a toy and a tool is really, uh, you know, how, how you can actually uh, scale uh, uh, as the company is growing and as you need to add more and more employees within that process and you start introducing things like, you know, cost centers and managers and so on, that are usually much harder to to, to um, control. So that's, I mean, it's interesting to, to focus in on the complexity component, which, which makes sense. I mean, can you give me an example of um, a prototypical Payhawk customer, what were they using before? And then what problems are they solving? Like specifically, you know, if you have an actual company you can name, that would be amazing. Um, what problems did they adopt Payhawk in order to solve? 
Yeah, I mean, I I can give you two examples for example for for, for now. So if we look at uh, let's say enterprise customers, there's a customer called uh, for example ATU that's in Germany. Uh, they're in the you know um, car service space. They have 550 car services across Germany, and they used to have two trucks driving across Germany gathering paper and receipts from their offices because they were very paper heavy. Uh, with Payhawk, we they issued 550 cards across all of their offices, and right now they actually have an ability to instead of using you know manual uh, expense uh, softwares to actually just uh, you know do regular expense reports and to be spending a lot of money out of cash or a lot of money out of uh, you know bank accounts that bank cards that were very hard to reconcile. Right now, all the spend they are doing is re- in real time in Payhawk. All the expenses and all the receipts are in real time in Payhawk. Um, and we're also doing data extraction of all the documents. So their finance team doesn't have to go and crunch data on a huge volume of invoices. So in general, when we go to a customer like that, we do replace their data extraction software. We replace their expense management software. We usually replace their bank cards, traditional bank cards that they have with the supplier. And in some cases, um, if the customer sees that as an opportunity, we also replace their bill payment solution where they can actually pay their and manage their accounts payable from a single vendor. Uh, so that's just one example. Um, for smaller companies that are, let's say, not at the scale of companies like Atu that has 1.3 billion revenue per year and then have close to 10,000 employees, um, we usually start by allowing those companies to have one single place to manage all of their expenses across their international businesses. Um, they have the ability to put together a um, much easier way to and empower their employees with company cards. Uh, usually when we go to a company, we issue six to seven times more company cards than they used to have before because you can actually put in real time a lot of processes and controls on the cars themselves. So you can build the, the, the car that you um, that you want to use within Payhawk. You can have the limits of what can be spent, where, how, and so on. You can have bundled that in different policies and approvals. And um, at the end of the day, that makes it extremely convenient. As you scale, you don't have to you know, figure out those four or five tools that you need to put together as a finance team. You can just have one. And especially if you expand internationally, the complexity increases exponentially because you need to identify what tools need to work for each of the countries, the currencies, uh, and how how you're able to reconcile all those uh, things in one place. And usually that goes into, let's say, your ERP system. Um, so that is kind of the, uh, the the problems we solve for our customers. And if I'm understanding correctly from your site, it looks like this is a product that you do charge for so the revenue model is more of a SaaS driven model as opposed to you know some players in the space that are more interchange driven or perhaps offer you know ancillary financial products like venture debt is that correct uh yes we do have credit uh, of course uh, it's a big function of that we do allow our customers to to have a credit line with us in the US and in the UK uh, we'll be launching a European-wide product as well soon. Um, but we think of ourselves as a SaaS company. Um, and this is where we are, when when we are selling to our customers, we are allowing them to really purchase a software that's able to help them build the right processes in place and the right infrastructure. And uh, we take it for a given that the cards needs to work internationally. They need to be always on. You need to have, uh, you know, very strong controls on the cards. 
but at the end of the day, it is usually, you know, the pain with this company starts when, when you, what happens after you pay or were you actually allowed to pay in the first place, right? And when you combine, you know, the company cards, the bill payments, the reimbursements as a financial layer, yes, we do make money from the interchange, but at the end of the day, we uh, are a company that is looking at to be kind of in the long term, extremely um, sustainable. And we are uh, providing also cash back to our customers. Uh, that's limited to the amount of your subscription. Um, so that this way, if the customer is one that's adopting and using the pro, pro um, the product uh, efficient uh, significantly, uh, and we're making the impact to their business, uh, we are driving their cost of the SaaS to zero. So then we can focus on the full interchange value. But that happens only after we get to a certain stage of activation within the customer, so that we can actually prove the impact, and then the customer can think, can drive that to zero. Ah, that's interesting. So it's almost like the SaaS fee is a uh, floor or minimum revenue that if a company is you know, spending, transacting a certain amount, uh, essentially it's going to be re rebated and effectively zero once they hit a certain size? Exactly, exactly. So we, we do a cashback yeah. uh, right now at 1.5% up to the amount of your full subscription on all payments card payments, right? So this way, um, this is a very a good alignment between the, you know, the customer and payhawk, because at the end of the day, we want to, we can afford this way, uh, you know, much better customer experience, much better customer onboarding, integration to the ERP systems, consulting, solution engineering they need to really put together the, the process in place that they need. And as soon as they're up and running and, uh, you know, they're spending, we are decreasing the fees and driving them to zero when we prove the impact. Uh, but that model is very well aligned between the, the need for the customer to be onboarded and, and, and uh, you know, the, the drive from our side to really onboard the customer. And, and something that, you know, some of my listeners may be less familiar with is uh, the relatively, you know, small amount of interchange that's generated in, in most European markets. I mean, I... Uh, live in the Netherlands, you know, the primary network is Maestro. Maestro is like, I think it's either a, like a flat two cents or two basis points per transaction, very minimal. So trying to build, you know, whether it's a consumer neobank or a commercial SMB enterprise product that's dependent on interchange, you know, I would argue is kind of unrealistic in a lot of these markets where, where the amount earned from that um, in revenues is you know, so much lower. I mean, you operate in 32 countries currently, primarily in Europe. You know, I find that a lot of Americans have what I would argue is a misapprehension that, you know, once you launch in one European country, it's sort of easy to almost immediately, <laughs> he's laughing and, and, and smiling, uh, almost immediately scale that, you know, across the European Union. Um, and I say misapprehension because, you know, most uh, bankers, financial services, people I talk to who have experience operating in this market, you know, would strongly, I think, argue that is not the case. You know, what has been your experience building the company, you know, across these markets? What sort of challenges, but also opportunities has it presented as you, you know, need to adapt from, you know, a country like the Netherlands or Germany versus, you know, Italy, Spain, Greece that may have very different ways of doing business, very different 
um, cultural traditions that impact how they use financial services? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, at the end of the day, we see this as kind of a really strong barrier to entry. Uh, it's really painful to go and build a product that can work across these countries because in markets like, for example, Spain, you know, we need to be certified with the tax authorities so that you can actually be paperless and you can throw away the paper after you take a photo with Payhawk. Uh, same for, for markets like in the UK to cover certain requirements, uh, similar to Germany as well. Uh, each of these countries have their uh, specific limitations and their specific uh, ways of doing things. And that is something that needs to be built out. Uh, and for example, if you take Netherlands, for example, you know, the native integration to exact online uh, was quite important for this market because the way they use their ERP systems and the, the systems they need are different. So being able to really cater to these kind of local integrations and local, you know, compliance, it was, you know, one part of it. Second of all, we, we like to think of ourselves as an international company. Uh, we do have seven offices today across the world. And in each of these markets, you know, we need to be locally, you know, uh, selling the product in a native language. We need to be supporting the product in a native language. You need to be having the user interface in a native language and you need to have a marketing strategy in a native language. So to us, that is kind of our defense strategy uh, versus some of the players that are, let's say, in the US where they're primarily building a product that's around credit. And in this market environment where the interest rates are increasing, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there is a kind of a, a little bit of turmoil on the market, um, you know, their gross profit is is, is is currently getting to a very, very low numbers uh, for a, you know, te tech company. And I think that's where the concern is of how you can rely on a business model to be really go and base your, uh, you know, you know, enterprise software and integrations and build those processes on something that is giving you, you know, 2% cashback, it's giving you a credit line, and then their gross profit is most probably within the, you know, the very, you know, very low number. Um, so how sustainable is that, right? And we start to see some of that change. Some companies in that space are moving away from the SMB, um, especially in the US. They announced that they will not be working with SMBs. They would like to move up market. Uh, they need to inevitably face the market reality that if you're building a high tech company, you need to have a high gross profit. Um, so that's kind of uh, quite important. And that's why we are doing it, I would say, the right way by being very mindful of the, you know, the business model of the way we scale of, you know, how we build things for the long term and how we support our customers, which is, you know, quite important. So the, the marketing side of me really wants to ask if you've noticed uh, a particular tactic or channel that worked in one country, but not another. So for example, um, I travel to Mexico with some frequency and I notice every time I'm in the airport, any of the airports, uh, but especially in Mexico City, it feels like every ad is for like a SMB focused fintech product, uh, you know, spend management, uh, lending, credit, and so on. In you know, in your experience working across you know various European countries, have you seen? you know, a channel work in one country, but like totally bomb in another, or is it fairly consistent market to market? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are some markets where we have done uh, out of home campaigns, um, you know, billboards and things like that, that have been extremely effective to drive awareness. 
there have been other markets that that hasn't been the case. And the reason for that is because our market category is now emerging and still people are not looking for the solution. They're looking for the brands out there. Uh, they associate the category with the brands, right? So they say, oh, this is like this or like that or like the other one, right? Um, and because of that, uh, you know, depending on how big uh, a, a local player is or how big of a penetration the category has, uh, it's actually, uh, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, when we enter a market where there is a big, big competitor, it is much easier for us to scale. It's much easier for us to sell. It's much easier for us to, you know, acquire customers from this competitor because we do have, a, uh, you know, I would say the best product out there. Um, and we have been able to really bring a lot of customers from, from these players. And that market is educated. Um, so, you know, when you go to a market that's not that educated, and actually Netherlands is one. Netherlands is a one that is, you know, I would say not the most educated about this specific use. Uh, you might face different challenges than going to a market, let's say, like the UK, uh, where the awareness for such kind of solutions is much, much higher. So at the end of the day, nobody is bigger than the, the, the market. <laughs> so you need to be uh, conscious about the, the penetration of the category and the, the life cycle of the category to build effective marketing strategies. So that, I mean, that resonates and makes a lot of sense if you're the first mover in a new product category, on the one hand, you have an advantage from being the first mover. On the other hand, you have the job uh, and by extension expense, marketing expense of educating consumers, what is this product category? How does it work? Why is it different? You know, Somebody can then come in and sort of ride those coattails once the category has been established. And if they have a better product, you know, that that work, that sort of uh, groundbreaking, so to speak, has has already been done for them. I mean, you recently launched in the US. You know, I'm curious to hear a little bit, you know, what underpinned the decision to enter that market? How are you going about positioning versus other companies in the space? You know, particularly given, let's say, the uncertain economic climate that that we're in and, and likely to continue to be in, um, you know, how do you sort of see that unfolding? Yeah, I think first of all, the way we think about positioning in the US is uh, we're targeting exactly this kind of mid-sized companies and enterprises where their, you know, complexity and requirements in terms of expense management and spend management are highly complex. So they really definitely would prefer to bet on somebody that has very sound unit economics and long-term you know, um, vision and plan on how they're able to sustain that. Uh, we have interviewed a lot of the, you know, customers of companies that are uh, companies that are using the local players there, and that has been the main concern they have shared. You know, yeah, I'm getting 1.5% cashback and limited, and you know, 2% cashback and so on, but I'm not sure how sustainable that's it. You know, is that company going to survive? And it is fine if you are using this company just to get a credit line, but if you invest time to build your operations with these companies, that's actually a risk. And that's why we are going to be targeting these kind of more complex mid-sized enterprise customers that are needing this kind of stability and requirements. And they do have also international presence, which we can serve uh, with our 32 countries. So we have a very clear uh, you know, segment which we are going after. And uh, second of all, we are also one that at the end of the day, 
we don't have to compete on marketing. We don't have to compete on brand awareness. The 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 market is extremely well educated in the U.S. So we do have this opportunity to really, um, you know, serve those customers in a much better, much more efficient way, much more scalable way, uh, with all of their international presence. And that's kind of our our play. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the difference of building in the American market versus building in the European market. Um, I mean, from, you know, a bank partnership perspective, you know, dealing with the card networks, dealing with potential customers or partners, uh, what, you know, what has been your experience? What has been different? What has been less different than you might have anticipated um, market to market? Well, I think the U.S. is one that is very different because you need to work with the charter bank there. One of the good things, though, for our specific product is that we are based on one and the same processor behind the scenes. So our card in the U.S., in terms of capabilities and functionality, is absolutely a carbon copy of the card we have in Europe. So you don't have kind of to make... Uh, you know, trade-offs of how you enforce controls and how you enforce policies in this or that market because the, the infrastructure is the same. So it's actually the same card. Um, so that has been one key thing for us to really have a one-to-one feature parity of what you can do with these cards because this is something we have seen a lot with other businesses where they enter new markets, they acquire something that's local and yes, they cover it on a checklist, but it's actually a different beast, a different product and different experience, which we we are not a fan of. Um, the second thing is, I would say that for the U.S. market, uh, we had to definitely do a, a fair amount of research to understand what are the key features that the local companies value uh, that were, for example, not that important in, in, in Europe or might be overlooked uh, and to make sure we have them. Um, so I think also integration with the, with the local ERP systems or, or systems that are primarily used in the U.S., uh, is something that definitely is also, uh, you know, something that needs to be done. Um, so I think, um, you know, the journey has been, you know, fairly, I would say, straightforward for us. We spent about a little bit more than seven months building the product uh, for the U.S. market. But at the end of the day, you have to keep in mind that there is also a huge amount of European headquartered companies that do have presence in the U.S., and at the same time, we we have more than ten percent of our customer base, uh, you know, on on the waiting list that we are slowly onboarding uh, for the U.S. Um, and that kind of a need is 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 pretty big. Uh, so that companies at the end of the day, we are combining, you know, three four market categories into one. And then if we if we need to get you out of this kind of uh, you know smooth experience and and implementation again back into the world, the old world. Uh, because we don't support a certain market, that's actually not optimal for you. So you you have to go a step back, and being able to really have a consistent, you know, software and and company cards and bill payments and reimbursements to employees across all these local markets, you know, supporting ACH payments, uh, you know, supporting the local currency, supporting the credit or debit instrument, which which whatever the preference is for the customer, is something that is highly complex. But that's actually our value prop, right? Simplifying this and providing a very nice experience for the finance team because the finance team is not a you know you know extremely technical team that is needs to be forced to go and stitch together you know four or five products they can just use a single solution and it sounds like you have a pretty clear idea of 
what the value prop, what the differentiation is and the market that you're going after. You know, if I, I, and I come from more of a consumer products world. So if I think of, you know, the European slash UK neobanks that attempted to go into the US market, N26 was pretty much a total disaster. Monzo is still making a go of it, but, you know, doesn't look particularly good. Revolut is kind of the only credible player. And if I have to sort of zoom out and think about, you know, what would I argue went wrong in those cases, you know, both N26 and Monzo didn't seem to have a clear idea of who their customer segment in the United States was or could be, and had frankly zero differentiation versus products that were already live in market. Your Chime and Vero and Current and you know half a dozen other neobanks. It seems like you know you're saying you know that's that's not going to be the case with your offering versus what already exists in the U.S. market, given the breadth of potential you know SMB enterprise clients and what you've built and how you're taking it to market. So I think you're right. Um, for specifically, one of the things that is very different between Europe and US is that all the European players have been heavily competing on software because credit is something that, uh, you know, very, very few companies do in, in Europe. Um, and at the beginning, when the market category was formed 2016, for the last six years, I would say 95% of the, the market has been focused on debit which means the main value proposition has been software. You know, how, you know, what's the quality of the software? What's the experience? What's the complexity? What's the integration points? You know, how does that work across different markets? And how do you manage multiple businesses or multiple entities or multiple countries? And that's something that we're extremely strong at. And when we bring and combine this with, uh, you know, in with the U.S. market, uh, with the ability to really serve the, the customers there with, a, you know, a credit line and allow them to have all the tools that they have been used to, but on steroids, that brings up a very, very compelling uh, strategy and uh, opportunity for us. Got it. Uh, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. But my final question always, where can users find out more about Payhawk? Where can they follow you on social media to keep up with the latest? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody can find us on payhawk.com. Uh, and um, everybody can find me as Christo Borisov on LinkedIn. Uh, this is where we post a lot of updates about the industry opinions and comments. Uh, uh, on related to the space. All right, Risto, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, until next time. Thank you for having me.